ladies and gentlemen, all the way from Jamaica, Madam Chair, Cynthia Pearson. woman, young, insecure, never refusing, always pleasing, sunk to the lowest depth of service. Her men unloved her, soiled her, made cheap as trash, wrinkled, discarded, kicked along a dusty road, shielding new conquests in tinted cars of yesterday's grind. Now they hurl today's fumes on her fading frame for being easy. Hello and welcome to The Journey, your radio show, hosted by Neville D'Angelo, author of A Soundbite Life and Flight of the Fused Monkeys, a PRG Emerging Technologies Forum keynote speaker and founder of Rio Sports. I am Joseph Ellison. Enjoy! Today we are taking you to the beautiful island of Jamaica for a breezy rendezvous with Madam Chair of the Podcar Circle, Cynthia Pearson, and her husband, a contextual theologian, David Pearson, also known as Rockstone. He also is a member of the Podcar Circle. As Podcarians, both are poets. They will introduce us to the circle, and by way of their poetry, escort us through that rough passage into life and living on the island and to that gate, inevitable death, pondering along the way not only of a safe passage but of one worthy of the journey and the while. Welcome to the journey. My name is Neville. Along the journey, we stop at intriguing places and meet fascinating people with novel solutions to some of life's tricky questions. And we play a few games and track the remarkable characters of three classic books, A Soundbite Life, Flight of the Fused Monkeys, and Illicet, A Time to Begin Again, all of which can be found on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Thank you, Ari. That is Ari Perez, my co-host. We are reaching Mr. and Mistress Pearson at their home. And before we meet the theologian, the rock, rock stone, Madam Chair, kindly let us into a little about who you are, your journey into poetry, and about the pot car circle. I started writing poetry from very early. And I wrote a lot of my poetry when I went to UWE, University of the West Indies, Mona, in the, in the mid-80s. 
I also did a creative writing course in writing and I focused mostly on poetry. I was very enthusiastic about being able to write then because I was able to include a lot of my emotional issues and you know personal issues. I was able to talk about them. Sometimes they were a little bit covered, not being very explicit, but it was a, a way in which I could, an outlet in which I could express how I was feeling. Mm-hmm. And after I left the university, I stopped writing. And uh, But David and I have been married for, we're going 21 years. Wow. And I think through Facebook, David linked up with Rick Couchman, and uh, he started writing his own poetry, David, that is. Hmm. And but he was writing, and he was going great guns with writing his own poems. And one week I got really ill. I think it was with a flu. And I was very bored at home, just nursing this flu. And then I said, what the heck? Can't I do a piece? I'll do a piece. And that's when I started writing again, hmm. really seriously. Um, tentatively, though, not quite sure how to form a piece again, but I thought it would come with more practice. Mm-hmm. And so I started writing, uh, I think it was two years ago that I actually started writing again and starting, started to post on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And that's where it evolved. Mm-hmm. And I loved the pieces that David wrote. I loved the pieces that Rick wrote. Other persons joined, and then they became the circle. And the circle has evolved to now the car circle. Mm. So here we are. I mean, it's, it's a very nice place to write your poems mm-hmm. because we are affirmed based on what we are talking about. Mm-hmm. We feel affirmed. We feel as if our pieces are worth writing. And even when we are hesitant and not sure about a piece, there's always somebody there to encourage and that is what that was part of the reason why I decided I didn't want this group to die. There was there was a there was a point in which people seemed to have been going elsewhere. And I wrote a piece called the I think it's called the the Writer's Circle mm-hmm. because I want it. It was a it was a piece that spoke about coming together and being together and staying together as a group. Mm-hmm. So it, it has blossomed from there. Mm. Do you have that piece with you? Yes, I can find that piece. Uh, if you could just give me a moment. Sure. In the in the meantime, I will just talk with David. David, sure. talk, yes. talk to me about your growth as a poet. Well, I wrote my first poem when I was about eleven or twelve. When I was just I just started high school in Jamaica. Mm. And I entered an arts festival with a piece called The Cry of a Schoolroom Locker. <laughs> um, it, it placed eighth in the competition, but more important for, importantly for me at that time is that we, I got points for my house in, a, in, the, in the arts festival competition. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I came eighth was neither here nor there because I'd never written a piece before. That was our first piece. Mm-hmm. I really did not write anymore until about six or so years ago. I started walking in the mornings 
and as I walked, I found that my mind thought on sports a lot and cricket, which I love. Mm-hmm. And I and I composed pieces as I walked, and I'd get home and I'd write. So I'd write on Brian Lara and Franklin Rose. These are West Indian cricketers, and so on. Mm-hmm. Sadly, most of those poems have been lost to a crashed computer, but I saved the one in Brian Lara. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I shelved that. And then after my mom's death a few years ago, I started writing, generally speaking, writing not necessarily poems. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd be writing early in the morning at 2 a.m. and so on. And I linked up with my friend Rick Couchman again. Rick and I did college together. Mm-hmm. And I linked up with Rick on Facebook, and he, he was sharing his poetry. It was very, very good poems. And I, I found that I, I tried writing a poem, a, a youngster from my son, one of my son's school, his father was murder, murdered. And I wrote a piece on it. And I posted it, a very rough piece. I posted that piece. And that was the first, that may, that may have been about three years ago or so on. And then I started writing regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how my writing started. Since then, I've written maybe 150 pieces or more. And um, they reflect a lot of my own concern as a Caribbean person, um, coming a lot out of my background as a theologian and trained in philosophy and hating the the impositions that have been placed on us as a, as a Caribbean people. Mm-hmm. And I find that my poetry kind of reflects a lot of those concerns mainly. And so they are very, some people, they're not, they not very tender pieces. They're very militant. Most of them are very militant. <laughs> no, but I think that's more how I have developed so far. Well, can you share with us one of those militant poems? <laughs> okay, it's called Contextual Page Rage. Contextual page rage. Dastardly decontextualized deliveries obfuscate truth and adjudicate to subjugate the powerless, to, to placate the interests of the powerful. They infuriate the prophets who separate God's intention from the pretension of those who claim to speak as divine projection. The oracle exposes bias predilections that confound in ways profound to the extent that the oppressed their own demise express as divine intent. Holy writ lays bare man's lack of care for a brother and sister whom he recasts as inferior of less value than the, than the stature of the divine image in which all are created. Texts written out of oppression will always denounce repression if read in context and not as pretext for man's dehumanizing selfishness. So up with Garvey, Bogle and Gordon, Bonhoeffer, King and X, Romero, Gutierrez, Cohn, Wright and Francis, Ruther, Walker and Toussaint, Nanny, Sharp and Fanon, Mandela, Tutu and others, angered by the senseless injustice that uglies the divine heart. That's it. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, David. Let me just say now that 
while people seemed at one point, the, the circle that is, mm-hmm. where they were not, people were not writing poems, I, David was the one that kept on writing despite everybody's, you know, seemingly disappearance mm-hmm. from Facebook in terms of making contributions and posts mm-hmm. of poetry. So he was the only one that kept up the fight. <laughs> and so the writer's circle is the name of the poem. Good. Are you ready for it? Yes, I yes. am. The fragile circle, once smooth and round, is it now cracked and torn, shattered and splintered, the pieces tired and worn? Has the circle of verse scattered without a comment? Pieces gone into blogging places, living vicariously on the social pages? Are some pieces ranting and raving of debates that are never-ending? Have some fallen victims of a heavy burden and rhyme has simply become an aversion? Yet remains a shining shard of light. The enemy of Goliath has kept up the fight. The flickering flame of the righteous circle still held a high. Damned if he let the poetic pieces die. That's it. I love it. <laughs> what happened yes, after that? Yes, it, 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 yes, people people start to pay attention. <laughs> you know, and that's why I was dubbed the chair, the, the Madam Chair. Yes, <laughs> you know, I, I so I fought to keep the the group together. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so so that's 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 why that poem was birthed. What what does poetry mean to you? Why, why that you could have been writing prose, you could have been writing lyrics for a song, you could have been drawing, I don't know if you're an, an artist. Why, why, why poetry? What does this mean to you? Um, it means a lot because I feel you can reach deep down and get far more than you thought was there. I, I find it it's very mentally and emotionally stimulating. It, it, I was telling David recently, I, I can understand the, the artist who tries to, to create a piece of painting. It, it feels that way. You are creating something. It, 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 so it's a creative process for me, and it's very, very important. And the, 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 the end product, you know, what is the, the artist is able to produce a piece that can reach and appeal to so many people. And, and, and it comes from way down. Most of my pieces come from way down. And, and so I, I, I put everything in it. Mm-hmm. And, and so for me, the creative process of being able just to be part of that process, very, very important. Now, what is, what is it, when a poem is finished, um, uh, and when I say finished in this point, I mean you've put that last dot and placed the pen down. What are you feeling at that point? Mm. Well, they're, 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 you never ever feel that a piece is done. Because even when you post it and you think you've put the final dot, sometimes when you revisit it... You still see changes. Yeah, you still see yeah, that, that it, can all, it can still evolve. But when you finally... Well, I, when I finally decide to post a piece, I feel a sense of satisfaction. Uh, it's done. It, it, it's, it's a whole piece. 
you know, you get always this sense of being satiated, and and I think that's that's part of the process as well. Wonderful. Let's say I hear David is back there. David, are you ready to get yeah. us all militant again? <laughs> <laughs> this poem is called "I Hate." I hate when people abuse their children with claims that I should mind my own business. I hate it when men squander hard-earned money and wantonly spend it in sheer idiocy, leaving dependent mothers and offspring to suffer. I hate it when fathers sleep with their adult daughters, or when mothers cohabit with their grown sons as perverted objects of their sensual liaisons. Consenting adulthood is no differentiation. I hate this with a most ardent passion. I hate it when idiots senselessly blow up others for nothing more than some despicable obedience to some misguided xenophobic religious obeisance. I hate it when the rich and famous spend wantonly, compounding the suffering of those in their slavery. I hate the modern political correctness that's nothing more than a bowing scaredness to those who think that they have bought the franchise on determining right from wrong. I hate when men hatingly distort my passion, branding it as some bigoted occupation, trying to kill those who choose a different way. They ardently maintain that hating is evil, the spawn of a megalomaniac megalomaniac, theistic devil. And look, they hate me back more viciously. I hate what we have made of life by hating that we ought to have the right to be free to logically express that which we hate. That's it. <laughs> hate is a very strong word. Yeah. <laughs> now, in the moment when you decided to write it, what provoked you into doing it or what spurred you or inspired you into doing oh, it? Wow. I have been battling on Facebook for some persons who we can only call trolls, <laughs> who invade the sites of others and belittle them for expressing ideas that are different from theirs. And so, because I'm very sensitive to what I believe is neo-colonialism, I see a lot of thought patterns being forced upon us as a people, and we are being told that we are less than smart not to embrace those ideas. Whether or not those ideas are right, at least I should be given the opportunity to think about them and to reject them if I want to. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what was going through my mind when I wrote that piece. You know, I was just very, very angry that here it is in the 21st century that persons are still trying to force us to think like how they think. Mm -hmm. We can differ on our thoughts. Just allow me the freedom to be different from you. Wonderful. That's what was happening to me. Don't Thank you. 
You can find the poems David and Cynthia are sharing on the journey by clicking on the poetry link wherever you are listening to us or go to thejourney.riosports.com that is thejourney.riosports.com and click on poetry. You'll find them seated at the Poets' Rung Table. We're enjoying season two of the Poets' Rung Table. Season one turned out enormously successful. We hope you'll enjoy the poets' performances and the spoken word artists being brought to you this season. We have about a dozen or more poets and spoken word artists, including a few surprises, lined up for you throughout the season. So come along to the Poets' Rung Table and enjoy. Let's get back to the home of David and Cynthia and see what else we can find out about living on the island, Jamaica, renowned for many things, including its remarkable citizens, Bob Marley, Usain Bolt, and there are many other Olympians, including their stereotype-busting bot-sledders. Let's talk a little bit about Jamaica. You guys, I'm assuming, are born and uh, lived throughout in Jamaica, is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Tell us a little about your country. (laughs) Perhaps. Well, you know, Jamaica is a small nation state that is extremely big in the minds of plenty of persons in the world because of our advances, especially in music and sports. You know, music with Bob Marley, sports in particular with Usain Bolt in recent times. However, from my standpoint, the very creative people that we are, it's a nation of social inequities. We were born, the modern Jamaica was born as an inequitous nation and has never changed. It has become, it, it has become more so in recent times. And so this wonderfully beautiful country, uh, wonderful um, countrysides and scenery and so on, and very friendly people, generally speaking, we have some of the greatest excesses of inequity that you will experience in many places and that's what I see from my eyes again as a contextual theologian Mm -hmm. that's how I see Jamaica and I think others may see it a little bit different differently from I do but that's what I see can you explain to us what you mean when you say you're a contextual theologian good Um, (laughs) the theology as a traditional traditional theology is seen as, is seen as a discipline to talk about Christian doctrine. Christ, I'm a Christian theologian and talk about Christian doctrine. And so people um, debate endlessly issues of the Trinity and the, the um, who Jesus is and heaven and hell and things like that. Contextual theology sees those things as being at least secondary, if not worse than that. What we are talking about in contextual theology is looking at contexts that shape people in ways that make them less than what they could be. And so contextual theology calls out society for what it is, and we point direction to how we think it can be better, that persons indeed 
from a theological standpoint, can begin to build a, a, a better space for each person that we can be who we ought to be. So, do you? How do you exercise or um, that that concept or that belief? How do you exercise it? How do I exercise that concept? Yes. Well, um, um, are you talking about in my poems or generally speaking in life? Anyhow, either in your poems or in life. Well, okay. As a theologian, I also I also teach to um, persons who are preparing for for working in society. Mm-hmm. And I try to get them to understand the, the contextual powers or the, 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 the powers that have been forced upon us as a nation to bend us in particular directions of usually to at the behest of the more powerful states in the world. Mm-hmm. So we help our people to see what has been happening in our history. But we also read from the, usually from the lives of persons and from the Bible itself, the possibilities that are so open to us, they are just so ready, readily available to us. If we just think differently and live differently, we can create better spaces, better communities, we can create a gentler society, one that is more empowering. So we try to help persons to think differently, to see things differently and to act differently. Hmm. Now, I, I'm going to press you on one more point before I go to Cynthia. Uh, now, uh, us uh, from this side of the pond, um, you say think differently, think differently from what, see things differently from what. How do we interpret that differently? Yeah, okay. For instance, one of the things that we are being bombarded with in Jamaica at this time, and it's been happening for a little while, is that we have become we have bowed to a materialistic ideal that has been um, sold to us by the West, by the big countries of the West, okay? Materialism is the name of the game and consumerism is the way to go. So today in Jamaica, for instance, you'll find that most Jamaicans today are said to be better off in terms of the poverty index. We are better off than we were 30 or 40 years ago. However, because of our consumerist bent, because of our given to an abject materialism, what is happening is that our communities are falling apart. You know, we, we are less tolerant to the people. We are, we, are, we are a very hard society. We are not as gentle as we once were. So to think differently is to, to see things as they really are, not just based on what persons tell us that we ought to see, you know, to try to understand that the community is better than the individual, it's more important than the individual, and as we work together, we can create a better space. That's what I have in mind. Okay, good. Thank you. Cynthia? Yes? The country belongs to you as well. Yes. (laughs) So how do you see it? Okay, um, again, like David, it's good place to be. I am checking my Facebook notes and I remember writing to myself, I am not keen about migrating because I love Jamaica. And I wrote that in 2009. Hmm. And I've been to several countries in the world. 
but I always feel that Jamaica is home. Mm. Um, every now and again, it comes to my mind when I, I really can't take some of the difficulties that we face. Perhaps uh, I could migrate, uh, but I still say with a lot of pain because I still feel that nowhere is like Jamaica. Nowhere. But one of the things I wanted to comment on, though, about Jamaica is um, the change, the changes that we're seeing among young people. So although I love my country, I am still concerned about the youth. I teach, I teach a foreign language. I teach Spanish in a high school, mm-hmm. and uh, I am very concerned about the the lack of values that we used to hold there when we were younger and the, the young and how they talk to to adults, to, to, to the elderly, you know, those are concerns for me and what what is it that we can do to help our young people to see that the road that they are taking is not necessarily the best road. It, it, it gets frustrating for me because I get very impatient. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's, just, it's just hard to see the youth, the students, just push past the teacher and not even saying, excuse me. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll grab something, you know, when you hand a piece of paper to a child, you know, after you're finished marking it, and, and not even to say thank you. You know, so, so those things are, are hard for me. And even though I may, may say, I don't think I want to teach anymore. I can't deal with these children. The generational gap is just too wide. I, I'm still reflecting and I'm thinking, it might be where I need to be. Because mm-hmm. though it, it feels difficult, I think I can make a positive change. It, it seems a little dark sometimes, but I think I can make a change within the classroom setting. Mm. And so that's what I'm grappling with where Jamaica is concerned. Right. Can, I, can, I, can I pose can two challenging uh, questions, uh, the kinds of which I pose to um, everyone who is in your situation? Is that okay? Are you ready for a challenge? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> uh, now, when we speak about the youth, uh, two things always I deal with youth all the time and um, and and understand the issues that you're raising yeah. but these youths are taught by us why are we blaming them why are we what why are we blaming them well the, the truth is I don't think we are the only teachers of our children I mean I have two boys mm-hmm and they are taught outside of our home. No, I wasn't meaning it in the question in terms of uh, parent uh, child or teacher child. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking about generation to generation. The only reason I'm speaking that way is because we're using the term youth broadly to suggest that there is a trend. Well, that youth broadly is taught by the generation above them broadly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, so, so why are we blaming the youth? <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. Um, we are to take some of the blame, definitely. 
um, because, as you said, we are handing down the lessons to them, and they're just learning it all so well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, 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 I want to retract the word blame um, just because of my own language and my own uh, 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 propensities. I, I, I didn't mean to su- suggest blame, but in terms of that challenge, if I, I now that we understand the question, in terms of that challenge, if we are responsible for teaching the youth and bringing them to the place that they are, what do you think, how can we retrain, redirect, or did we do it right and we don't realize we've done it right? You see, that question is very loaded, and uh, (laughs) the factors, the factors which contribute to um, what we are doing with the youth mm-hmm. it's multifaceted it's a multifaceted issue um, maybe as David suggest, suggested earlier we the, the teachers let's call it that in inverted commas we mm-hmm. are becoming also very materialistic mm-hmm. or we are, we are we have changed our values our value systems have changed mm-hmm. and, and so we, we can't be bothered with perhaps some of the things that we were taught from the generations before. We, we, you know, they're 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 just not, they're, they're not, they don't they're not seen as nice enough as, you know, rich enough. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't they don't grab the eye enough, mm-hmm. or they take too much time. And and we live in a world where we have to hurry and rush and do everything. I mean, everything is instant. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we have bought into that whole culture as well. You know. Mm-hmm. I, unfortunately, I have to say some of it is imported from the north. Um, you know, we, we we buy our children gadgets. We they are also gadgeted. Um, nobody does mental um, activities anymore. We don't add up numbers in our heads. We go for a calculator. Um, and, and so the, the world is changing, mm-hmm. and 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 we are we are moving with it. I I don't think we are for the most part we're resisting. Mm-hmm. the changes that are taking place. And so we, we have bought into a materialistic culture and we're selling it to our children and, and it seems as if that is what they want. <laughs> and we're getting, we're reaping the fruits <laughs> of our labors. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to challenge you, but, 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 but I, do. I, I mean it genuinely and, and wholeheartedly, but I do push... Um, Every every teacher that I speak to, every parent that I speak to, that tell me about the youth, I I I go that place. I go even further, but I wouldn't. <laughs> but <Okay>. but uh, <laughs> now I would want to think, and maybe it was different in Jamaica. This is my second push on on you that um, when we were youths, our parents said the same thing about us. Are we becoming our parents, or 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 is everything going all right? Didn't we turn out right? I I suspect if I can piggyback on Cynthia yes, here, yes, bit, yes, that once there's a shift in values, then the the, we, the the persons who see their values being being eroded away will will become very concerned about that. Right. <laughs> you know, and so in that sense, we have become our parents. Um, 
I look, however, and in my own mind, I, some of the shifts I'm seeing today. My, my parents are concerned about the way we dress and so on, as we are with our sons, you know. And in a sense, that is something that I think all generations will face. Right. Mm-hmm. However, what I see happening a little bit more is that some of the fundamental values that made community what it was when we were growing up. Mm-hmm are being eroded, mm-hmm. you know, like for instance, um, when, we, when we were young, there was this respect for, for the elderly, whoever they were, and, and an elderly person could, could correct me on the streets, and I dare not make my parents know about that. Mm-hmm. In Jamaica today, as I guess in other places, the elderly are afraid to correct wayward youth when they see them on the street, because what happens very often is that parents come back to to put the elderly in his or her place. Right. right. You see. <laughs> having spoken to the, to the children. So right. what we see happening is that it's, in my mind, it's not just the external factors of the differences between the generations that we're talking about or we're worried about here, but we're seeing that community is falling apart mm-hmm. and that concerns us a whole lot. Right, right. I sometimes wonder, I like to challenge parents, I like to challenge leaders, I like to challenge teachers to step back and before they go forward. Stepping back, I don't mean going backwards, but to step back and see if they're seeing it with the right eye. I, you know, it doesn't mean that they're wrong or anything like that, but um, I, I get defensive of the youth because, as you said, you just, you just gave a good example um, maybe as elders we have squandered the respect. As you said, a parent now would not like their child to be, let me put in inverted commas, corrected by some other elder. Um, So obviously we are saying that, hey, we don't like the way you do it or we don't like the correction that you have. So we ourselves as parents, broadly speaking, are really rejecting the very things sometimes we are advancing. Right, right, right. <laughs> so sometimes I ask people to just step back a little bit, <laughs> just step back and uh, watch. But that's just, just I'm coming off of my soapbox. You are on the journey, and it's time for our question of the week. Oh, Neville, Neville, Neville. Our question of the week is this. Do you create for yourself a practical space for private reflection and recalibration? And if so, how often do you go there? Do you create for yourself a practical space for private reflection and recalibration? And if so, how often do you go there? My guests are poets, Mr. and Mistress David and Cynthia Pearson. We're reaching them at their home on the beautiful Caribbean island of Jamaica. 
Cynthia is an educator, Madam Chair of the Potcar Circle, and mother of two boys. David, her husband, is a contextual theologian, a member of the Potcar Circle, and uh, father of their two boys. It's about time I allow them to speak to us in the form of their poetry. Madam Chair. Okay, this one is about what happened in my childhood, going, going to primary school, and one of the folk tales, because we're talking about Jamaica, so I think it's, it was good to talk about something that happened when I was going to school. And so this one is called Seasoning. Um, there is this notion that little girls, you know, if you're dying to have your breast grow, you could do some things with it. And so let's see if you can understand what this one is telling us to do. Okay. It's called Seasoning. Her classmate said Scallion would do it rubbing daily tiny button sprouts not yet harnessed. Pubescent dream of bulbs in full bloom in a lush garden scene took to the girls' bathroom to force ride full-sized cups. No more than ten, they believed those tales, working the babes, massaging until the sun ripened and marinating buds absorbed pungent skeleton green hidden beneath. As the girls teamed, only frustration grew. Their seasons had yet to come, and button sprouts remained under, long unseen. It takes you back. Now, yeah. um, that was in, I think, maybe grade three. Mm-hmm. And we were about perhaps nine, nine years old at the time, mm-hmm. or ten, yeah. Yeah, and uh, there was a student who approached me with, with Scallion in a wrapped in newspaper, <laughs> you know, and she said, you know, if you want your breast to grow, then we need to rub it. <laughs> so we used to go to the girls' bathroom and rub our breasts. Did it work? <laughs> no. That's why the, la- the last line of the poem said, they remained under, long, unseen. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. So we, we only walked about smelling of skeleton. You know. <laughs> that was about it. <laughs> oh, to be a child again. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> All right. Would you like to share another one with us, or would uh, David go with what? I think David has one ready. Okay. 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 I, I perhaps will comment on this one after. Okay, good. You ready? Yes, I'm ready. It's called I Had Words Too. I Had Words Too. He spoke with an affected eloquence, words that were a curious string of beads, mismatched colors side by side, paraded with misguided notions of the most ardent propriety. Yes, each stood independently, proudly refusing to enhance the beauty beauty and value of the others. Cadence and coherence were expelled and replaced by a jarring functionality that distorts more than delivers. I had was to comment on this occurrence. That's it. <laughs> Tell us about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> in in Jamaica, <laughs> there is a, a, a 
an ongoing, a, an age-old debate as to the value of local Creole. Mm. And in many places, it's still not accepted. And so what we have is that we have many persons who really function daily only in the Creole, and they try to speak proper English, what we call proper English, mm -hmm. and they don't do well at it. So they create phrases, they create all kinds of statements that that ought to be an indication that they are good English speakers, but they really aren't because they they are grammatically poor. Right. I had was too, for instance, right. and such. And so one morning I was traveling on the bus, which I love doing. Actually, it's, you get to see people, and it's very quiet and comfortable, and so on. And there was this older man who was, as we'd say, talking up a lady in the church mm -hmm. in, in, in the bus. <laughs> yeah, you know. Mm -hmm. And as I heard him speak to her, I heard that I heard that statement. He said something I had once too, <laughs> <laughs> and I I just couldn't help myself. I sat down right there and wrote this poem in about three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it just came out. I just couldn't help myself. You know? He was the, he thought he was doing a really good job in in, in putting across his point to the lady, and I just happened to have been eavesdropping and overheard. I had once too. So that's where it came from. Okay. Um, so I shared on seasoning, which is was a happy moment for me. Well, now looking back, it's funny. But um, there's another that was very painful, a personal experience again. Very painful. And it spoke about my miscarriages. I had, I had two miscarriages. But again, nature spoke to me. And so I wrote this one called The Reaper. The Reaper. Opening the swollen pod of Gungul in the partial shade, the Reaper paused at the open womb, only two fit to reap. Mature peas were born, but the tiny ones aborted growth in the same pot, still attached by the cord, refusing to grow in the light. Watching miscarried gungu seeds in the, sh in the shadow, the reaper felt the loss of death, unable to bring her fruit to fullness. Pondering darkly at night, the reaper questioned the signs of hostility against the tender embryonic seeds. Yet, reaching out at dawn, knowing nature's quirks, the reaper in faith opened another womb to harvest. That's it. It's important that the people, the listeners, know what gungu means. Yes. It really is pigeon peas. Right. I'm glad you explained that. <laughs> we, we call it gungu in Jamaica. <laughs> I think that's the African term, actually. G-U-N-G-O. Gungu. Ah. Okay. I, I read one called Nurture's Nature. It says, the gentle breeze blows in pleasant memories of the cooling shade of your larger-than-life presence. You were our respite from the summer's searing heat. Your arms held us aloft as we swung gaily to the sky. You bore in your body the brands of our love as you proudly displayed our hearts for all to see. I remember wondrous days when we shared you with others who found your unsurpassed hospitality, a truly irresistible lure. 
Love's sweetness flowed freely from your inexhaustible bounty. I remember those secret times when I poured out my pain, going on again and again. You listened without interruption, uttering no words of condemnation. Today it is painfully difficult to view your fragility. Your arms of strength do not bend in the breeze. You are no longer wrinkle-free. Your shade has all but disappeared, your abundant sweetness, history. Others see only your agony. But memories of your nurture inspire me to be their stability, a pleasant presence in their turmoil, the love that comes from mother. Hmm. That's it. It's a poem written for a friend who lost her mother recently. Hmm. I'm doing one called I'm Not Fit. This one is about trying to teach the youth, as we spoke about earlier. Mm-hmm and feeling that I'm just not fit after doing this for 27 years. I'm not fit. I'm not fit to teach this generation. I'm old, old fogey, unfit to use all this modern technology. I'm not instant. My mind has been aged for some time to produce the best blend and to discard illogic dregs. I'm not fit. I'm not fit to teach this generation who needs to cut and swallow fast, unfit, for I'm slow when they're always on the go, distracted, not caring if the nuggets of truth have been digested for something useful. I'm not fit. I'm not fit to teach this generation unfit, full stop, They accuse me for taking too long to give the test, and I'm hoping they would chew, savor the sweet taste of knowledge instead. But they protest that with quick one, two, three steps, regurgitation would have been best. I'm not fit. I'm not fit to teach this generation unfit, so I simply sit and wonder if, Our modern world will no longer need percolating minds to read, to think, to reason meaningfully for the future good of the society. So, I do not fit. I do not fit into this generation. Can't fit. For with yet another invention, replacing me to teach, I worry, I bitch, that apple brains, and Microsoft hands will retire me for being obsolete and for being an old age glitch. That's it. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't, couldn't help. That's, that's profound. That's profound. I'll read my last piece. So this one is called The Moon. The moon shines a dull light barely illuminating the steps that lead to my room. Its partnerless walk through the night hides the path for those who find romance a distant memory or an all-too-painful pipe dream. It creeps through the casement window and peeps through my open door, but the wonderful footsteps of love and the sweet aroma of her rose petals remain on the outside. 
I place my fingers in my ears, stopping the mocking sound of a distant love song. Ladies and gentlemen, my guests, David and Cynthia Pearson of the Podcar Circle. It's obvious that the, that the Podcar Circle is just a circle of writers with different interests, different ideas and motivations, you know, but we perhaps share the one fact that we are Caribbean people. Hmm. You know, that's, that, that's perhaps what I would say about the one thing I'd say about Podcar Circle. And the truth is, Rick was the one, Rick Couchman was the one who set the high standards for us. And everybody aimed for that level, you know, of high poetry, of, you know, class in our poetry. And, and so we, 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 we help each other. We, we, are, we inspire each other. And, you know, so we, we are a good group for each other. So, yeah, so it's, it's a, the podcast is an excellent group. Wonderful. of writers who want to be encouraged. And, and so we're also inviting others to join us with high standards. Great. Wonderful. It really was nice to have you on the program. I'm looking forward to, to reading and listening to more of your poems. Sure. Okay. And thanks for having us. See you next week. The Journey is available free on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, Rio Sports Radio, and several of your favorite internet platforms. Download, embed, and share via any of the social media you love. TheJourney.RioSports.com That is, TheJourney.RioSports.com dot com